0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL.
1: This morning, a big announcement ahead of the Olympics that Miranda I am and Nathan Hirayama will be Canada's co-flag bearers for the opening ceremonies in Tokyo later this week. That's how close the Olympics are. Later this week, and you think, wow, this is the second games in a row that we have had someone from this area as a flag bearer. We mentioned Scott Moyer and Tessa Virtue. We just heard some thoughts from Scott Moyer. Now it's Miranda I am, who is a Saunders secondary graduate, going into her third games as part of the women's basketball team. We get an opportunity right now to speak with one of the proudest fathers on the planet, uh, certainly, I think, one of the proudest dads in this country. Joining us, Gus I am. Gus, how are things? Uh, things are great, Mike. Thanks for having me on. appreciate it. When things like this come about, when you hear that your own child is going to be in a position that very few people are ever in, representing their country in a way that very few people get to represent their country, what's it like as a dad?
2: Oh man! Uh, For for us, uh, for me as as a dad, and for us as a family, it's just uh, amazing. It's amazing, uh, amazingly emotional for all of us. Uh, My dad and I uh, immigrated to Canada when I was in grade school. So just the thought, first of all, that uh, my daughter would suit up for Canada all these years has been just amazing, and then uh, to have this additional honor added on. you know, uh, my wife Sandy and I and Miranda, we're just extremely thankful to God for for uh, many blessings, including this particular honor. So it's uh, the emotions are still uh, are still cascading through. Through uh, I, I think I heard Scott saying that uh, you know many people could have been named as a flag bearer, and, and we feel the same here as well in in this situation. So we're just truly touched and honored that Miranda was selected.
1: It's already almost 2 a.m. in Tokyo, so the the time changes there. Miranda's already in Tokyo. Are you talking with her much? Can you find a a time where Tokyo and Ontario collide? Well,
2: um, yeah, we've been talking to her pretty well every day. 13 hours ahead they are, uh, so we've had to figure it out. Uh, but we, and but even after today's uh, today's announcement, we we captured a few minutes uh, to to chat. Thank goodness for the technology that we have now because uh, I, I don't know how you do it otherwise. But uh, I, I'm not sure that she's sleeping yet because she's pretty wound up and excited about this. But um, um, yeah, we're finding time. We're capturing some time as a family here and there uh, for herself, for us, and for her brother as well who lives in London.
1: Fantastic. We're talking with Gus I am. Father of Miranda, I am one of Canada's co-flag bearers with Nathan Hirayama, who is a men's rugby player, and they will be bringing the Canadian flag into the opening ceremonies later this week. Depending on what kind of time change you're looking at, depends on which day you'll be paying attention to the opening ceremonies. Kind of the way it goes. There'll be some tape delay this time around. Have you got all of her basketball games scheduled? Are you going to stay up for all of them or, or get up early have you figured that out yet guys
2: well we're we're, uh, we're a family that likes to watch the sports live so we'll be either getting up early or staying up late and yeah yeah we've 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 done a
1: map <laughs> <laughs> well that'll make it fun there, there'll be some bleary mornings because i think the the time change and the way that the schedule works they're not always at consistent times are they 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 can really be you know one's early and, and one's really late
2: it really is, uh, so that's, that's the tricky part is figuring out uh, whether we're, we're uh, playing on the same day or um, as us here, or whether it's a day later. or Like uh, one of the games, I think it's the second game, we are watching it late at night, um, but they're already into tomorrow.
1: <laughs> it's going to be confusing for the next couple of weeks but hopefully well worth it Gus talk to us a little bit about basketball and your family because this is something that you played at a very high level as well and now you've got a daughter who's one of the best of the best female basketball players in the country uh well, I-,
2: I played at a high level but it doesn't mean I was really good <laughs> <laughs> I played with uh, with Fanshawe under uh, great coach uh, Glenn Johnson. I played with uh, Emilio Rocca and uh, Bill Carrier, Billy Sewell, and, and oh, and you'll recognize the name uh, Vito Vito was, with with uh, the the Lightning Vito Fergia. Yeah. So, um, but those guys were top notch guys, obviously. And uh, so it's great to have Miranda playing. Uh, we as a family love basketball, love all sports. Sandy is a, uh, was a track star in her day, so um, it, we couldn't help but play uh, basketball. We're, th- we're one of those families where the, um, the the garage door had the basketball marks on it all nice. the time. <laughs> but, uh, no, Miranda's uh, done really, really well with it. Um, sacrificed a lot, done a lot of hard work, obviously. Um, but the, the London commu- basketball community has been very, very supportive. I want to say thank you to, um, all her coaches at Saunders, uh, Pete and, and Jamie. Um, the, even coaches where she didn't play. So the Beale coaches, uh, Marco Tullio and Angelo, um, and, and then the UWO coaches and players, the Fanshawe players. What th- many people don't realize is, uh, um, through the summers when Miranda would be coming home to, to uh, practice, to uh, try and get a game in in the middle of the summer before she went to uh, Team Canada training camps, uh, all of those coaches would make arrangements to, maybe I'm not supposed to say it, but they would uh, open the gym doors. They would um, arrange for former players to come in the middle of summer and give her a run or play pickup uh, so that she'd be in game shape by the time she got to to uh, training camp with uh, with Team Canada. So it's been a, a village effort, and uh, kudos to everybody for stepping up through the years uh, without oh. any
1: thought of getting a
2: thank you out of it.
1: The basketball community in London is tremendous, and like you say, there is so much crossover where you've got coaches involved in so many different areas and players that all know each other all over the place. Gus, when were you able to say, wow, Miranda is – she She has the it factor when it comes to basketball. She has something that may take her a long way. Do you remember what age she might have been?
2: Um. For sure, we knew in uh, early in in high school. Um, I, I think we all knew before she did, so we kind of had to convince her, okay, time for you to take the next step. And then when uh, the U.S. colleges started calling up, um, you know, that was an eye-opener for her, but the rest of us all kind of knew uh, that the possibility was there early on in, in high school.
1: And then you see, you know... Provincial level, U.S. colleges, national team. What's it like for her to make each one of these? What was it like to finally get to maybe the national team?
2: Um, Well, that was uh, exhilarating. The first time that she was uh, selected for an international game, just amazing because even though you've been playing with the u Whatever age team, it didn't really feel uh, like you'd landed until you're with the senior team. And, and so uh, um, it was just an amazing time um, for, for her and for us, for sure.
1: When you look at where women's basketball has come to, you've been able to watch the growth of women's basketball throughout her career, and and that has been just exponential recently. Where do you see things going from here? Is it only going to get bigger?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. The uh, growth of women's basketball is just, uh, has just been amazing. doesn't get enough... Uh, uh, eyes on it in my opinion uh and maybe I'm a little biased but uh, the uh the players are just so uh athletic and uh, their basketball IQ is great and and a lot of them are going uh, stateside or playing uh here in Canada at a high level um but they're in demand and uh, so the, uh, the women's basketball team for Canada has some uh, some good 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 years ahead for it for sure and hopefully it starts with with uh, something significant in in this uh this olympics
1: absolutely let's hope so well Miranda has been part of a, a gold medal team at the pan Am games and You look at the rankings, they're among the top countries in the world going into Tokyo, so let's hope everybody can stay safe and everything moves smoothly over in Tokyo. Gus, I know you'll be paying very close attention to every second, so get rested up for this. Thanks so much for the time. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Great talking with you. That is Gus I am, Miranda I am's father, as we look ahead to the start of the Tokyo game. You know what a key is to being healthy? Water. Water. Not only is it a key to being healthy, it's a key to being alive. And not just any kind of water. Fresh water. You can't be floating on the ocean and say, just a second, let me drink a cup of this. That's not going to help you out. You need fresh water. Water is as valuable a thing as we have on this planet. Because humans and the rest of the creatures that join us... If we don't have it, that's it. You're not going to make it very long. So the idea that water, for some time now, has been traded as a commodity, should that be setting off more alarm bells than maybe it actually is? Let's get some insight into this. Dr. David L. Kelly is a professor of economics and and co-chair of the Sustainable Business Research Cluster at the University of Miami Herbert Business School. Dr. Kelly, thanks so much for taking some time for us.
3: No problem. Nice to meet you.
1: Let's look at water. We can know how valuable it is. All you have to do is talk to a scientist who's done any research on what the human body needs to live, and sometimes that doesn't take a whole lot of time being a scientist. It's important, (laughs) but we know it's being... Traded right now as a commodity. How long has this been going on?
3: Uh, it's been going on for many years, and it's been trading in California, Texas, Arizona. Um, what's new is it's is the futures market. So now you can trade on the what the cost of water is going to be in the future, not just the current price of water.
1: Okay help those of us who have zero yeah. business acumen if there is less than business or less than zero i think i can grab that kind yeah. of ticket um so let's let's talk about what that might mean does that mean there are those who will want to see the value of water increase
3: yeah so you know just picture yourself first as a as a farmer in california and you're going to go plant your crops and you're thinking okay I'm going to have to pay, say, $500 an acre foot for water, and, you know, I can make a profit planting my crops doing that. And So you go ahead and you plant your crops, and then the price of water doubles, and then suddenly it's no longer profitable. And so what can happen in a drought-like situation like that is not only do you lose money because you can't finish, you know, irrigating your crops and so on, but you also wasted all that time you know, um, planting and seeding and, and so on and all the costs associated with that. So what this new water market allows you to do is just to lock in a price in advance. So I can lock in that $500 price in advance. Then if the price of water doubles, I don't care. I'm insured about that. And I can go ahead and plant my crops with confidence knowing that, you know, the amount of I have to pay for water is, is, is fixed through this through this market. Right, so what it does is it gives farmers, you know, some certainty into what they're going to have to pay for water for for their irrigating their crops. Okay, I mean, well, when you mention it like market, that,
1: Doctor Kelly, it it almost it sounds better. It's that that makes it sound okay. Yeah. It's farmers trying to get a sense of what it's going to cost them to grow their crops. That's good. Is there another side to this that? is again setting off any alarm bells or maybe should be
3: uh you know i don't think so i you know i think the the good part about having a price of water is it encourages conservation and so you know really yes water is something that everybody needs for life and not only to drink but to, to grow our food uh and all the way up the food chain right but the issue is is you know, those who have water, you know, water is distributed in some way in California based on historical, you know, allocations, who lives where and so on. And, you know, you want to give a strong incentive for people to conserve. And one of the ways you can do that is by putting a price on water. So now if I have extra, I can sell it and get a price for that. So now it makes sense for me to invest in you know, better irrigation equipment that doesn't waste as much water to, to grow crops that are not as water intensive like they sometimes do in California, and based on the idea that if I have extra, I can sell it, right? So, you know, the the issue is not so much, you know, how much is really necessary for, you know, survival or that sort of thing. It's a very small amount, really, for, for a human. But what, what you want to do is give the incentive for conservation and, you know the way that works in our system is you put a price on it and so then, then then you can sell it if you have extra
1: We're talking with Dr. David Kelly, professor of economics, co-chair of the Sustainable Business Research Cluster at the University of Miami Herbert Business School. So this puts it into a whole new perspective because you think when you start putting a price on water, it drives up the price. This could almost have the effect of forcing people into conserving it does that have any impact on the rest of us in any way or would this be just on people who need to buy large quantities of water i.e. farmers in california who might be experiencing drought conditions
3: yeah no i mean it you know it would affect municipalities but you know often municipalities don't really like you know pass that price along to consumers in in the same way so you know, you're, you're unlikely to see in a, in a typical municipality the price of water shoot, shooting up and down all the time as a consumer. So in that sense, it's mainly for industry, uh, you know, agriculture, big water buyers like that. So, yeah, I would agree.
1: When you look at how popular water futures are or could become, how do you think they'll compare to other commodities?
3: Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know what you need is a, a liquid market you need a lot of people trading um so that farmers if they need water can go and buy it or if they want to buy water in advance through the futures market that they can go and do so and so i'm just looking now at the uh, you know how liquid these markets are i guess liquid's an interesting term for, for water <laughs> futures markets but um you know it's somewhat spotty right so you know um, it's not as as popular a, a commodity to trade on as as some of the other ones like corn or pork bellies or whatever. So, you know that's an issue. And and you know in order for this market to be truly successful, it's going to have to be the case that people can can buy and sell in this market regularly.
1: Because we haven't had water futures for too too long. If people don't pick up on this, could it just stop being a commodity that's traded for in on the futures market? Or once it's there, is it there and, and it just matters how many people are actually paying attention yeah. to it as to kind of the popularity?
3: Yeah, no, it, 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 there have been cases of futures markets that have been canceled, you know, because of lack of interest or lack of trading. You know, it does cost the um, operators of this market money to to keep the markets open. Um, So, yes, I I have seen that happen in the past. That doesn't look like it's the case in this example, but, you know, you'll have to see as as we go forward.
1: But not something to look at and tremble about that, uh uh-oh, the stock market is taking over water and water futures. Hopefully this just plays the game a little better and maybe we all wind up being better off for it.
3: Yeah, I think we all are a little better off for it. I think it's the right way to look at it. You know, when, when we have a drought situation, you know, that is the time when you want people to conserve more. And and so that's a situation where the price is going to go up and then people are going to say, well, how can I how can I conserve more water so I don't have to pay for this expensive, you know, expensive water and and you know, you get to conserve conservation when you want it when when there's a drought condition and, and therefore the price is high.
1: Could it have any spillover to the price of food, and that the farmers have to pass that on, or the you oh, know, the yeah. Yeah, it could have
3: absolutely. it could
1: have a, a cause on that then
3: yeah, especially in water intensive crops, you know things like almonds and stuff like that, which are grown in California and tend to be fairly water intensive, you know that's where you'd see the price increase,
1: okay, well, Dr. Kelly, we really appreciate putting perspective and context on all of this. Have yourself a great rest of the day, please stay safe.
3: All right,
1: you too. That's Dr. David Kelly, professor of economics and co-chair of the Sustainable Business Research Cluster at the University of Miami Herbert Business School. So the idea that water being traded on the futures market might sound like, uh uh-oh, that's going to make the Great Lakes a whole lot more valuable. Well, maybe it does work in other directions. Now, does it keep the price down on stuff? Maybe not, you know, if you've got water-intensive crops, as Dr. Kelly pointed to, but the idea that if you are paying a lot for something and you can find ways to reduce the cost of that, take a look at how electric cars have at least grabbed a hold – of the market I wouldn't say that we're seeing that you know that massive boom although we've got a lot of manufacturing in this province that seems to be betting that that will continue to take place because you've got whether it's oil or you know or gas that's manufactured from it you've got those two things that are going to become more and more scarce you've got to look at alternatives Pegasus Project. Is that the name of the new James Bond movie that's coming out in October? No, actually that's called No Time to Die. And that will be the last Daniel Craig appearance apparently as James Bond 007. That's that's October 21st. No, the Pegasus Project is something completely different. But we're going to get a chance to talk about it now. Unlike it being a movie or a book by Robert Ludlum or John le Carre, uh, it's real. It is a real thing. Joining us now to help us understand what it is, if it is not a movie script or a new novel from a spy mystery writer is Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. Dr. Cook, are you a James Bond fan or a, a spy novel fan considering what you do? I'm, I'm a huge James Bond fan, it, admittedly. You, you
0: made my Monday kind of sad, Mike. I didn't know that this was going to be his last film in the fall.
1: Ah, well, just, but just just for, you know, Daniel Craig. But I so love I, Daniel I think there'll have to be a new 007.
0: <sighs> Another Monday, Mike. Thank you for that.
1: Maybe it could be you.
0: <laughs> Maybe it won't be me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know it won't be me. Nobody's asked, and I don't what, think what I can if, pull that. Up. I don't look what, good enough in a tuxedo.
0: What if we team up? We could go to the studio and say that Mike and I, Tommy Cook and Mike Stubbs, will team up and we'll be the new James Bond together.
1: You could be double o four. I'll be double o three. Together we'll be double o seven. Perfect. Huh? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's talk about the Pegasus Project while we plan how to be movie stars in another (laughs) alternative realm. Uh, What is the Pegasus Project, Dr. Cook, and why do we even need to know about it?
0: Pegasus Project is an initiative that is technically supported by Amnesty International. They've been working with um, a Paris, France-based research group that is trying to investigate um, the likelihood that the NSO Group, which is basically a private sector um, surveillance software development firm that is founded by former members of the Surveillance Agency of Israel, had been developing a piece of malware, basically spy software uh, installed on people's or target smartphones, to... Um, reveal a bunch of personal information to help governments track those targets, track those individuals. The software that they developed is called Pegasus, which is why, you know, we have aptly named the Pegasus Project. And and what the Pegasus Project is actually referring to is not just an investigation into the software that the NSO NSO group developed specifically. Uh, It's more specifically dealing with a, a recent revelation that they caught wind of that a number of governments, not just Israel, around the planet, had been recently coming up with a list that they've been sharing with one another of different targets around the planet that they could basically use to track who they deemed as you know uh, t- targets of the state, threats to the state. And most of those people happen to be politicians, activists, and journalists. So the reason why we're talking about this right now, Mike, I suspect. Is because just over 26 or so hours ago, this project made a major announcement that 50,000 journalists, politicians, and activists worldwide have been targeted by 12 governments using Israel's Pegasus software.
1: That's a lot of people.
0: It's a heck of a lot of people.
1: Wow. Okay. So you mentioned that this is a piece of malware. Can they target something like that to go to individuals phones i mean we're talking political figures activists journalists can they say yeah uh, let's send it to their phone is it as easy as that
0: yeah it really is it's it's a very dangerous piece of software because it finds very very innocuous and seemingly non-suspicious ways of installing packets into devices that will allow the operators on the other side of pegasus to basically take complete control Um, It's kind of like a surveillance science fiction, where anything that comes into the phone or leaves can be seen by the person on the other end operating the software. It's proven to work. Uh, The Israeli government and the NSO group sold the software to the Saudi government, which has been proven to use that to track down who they labeled a dissident, Jamal Khashoggi, who they then subsequently killed. He was murdered by the Saudi government, and you might recall that when this incident unfolded before the pandemic, of course, the Saudis denied it and eventually came out to be uh, quite the opposite. Um, one of the, the many countries that subscribes to the software as revealed by the Pegasus Project is Mexico, and a journalist who is a big critic of Mexico was killed on the weekend, and the project suspected that the Mexican government used Pegasus to track him down.
1: We're talking with Dr. Thomas Cook, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Postdoctoral Fellow at the Surveillance Study Centre at Queen's University. And we're talking about the Pegasus Project, what it is, and the targets of certain world leaders activists or journalists is there any way to find out whether or not if you were a world leader or an activist or a journalist that might fall into a category like this is there any way to find out whether or not this is installed on a piece of you know whether it's a phone or, or a computer some yeah. piece of software that you have are you nervous that or you might sorry piece of hardware am i making a list are are you
0: nervous that you're on the list
1: i i'm as irrelevant as they come i hope (laughs) Uh, i certainly feel rather irrelevant um and i like to keep it that way
0: yeah i I would too so maybe we should avoid doing the uh the duo for the james bond replacement
1: but But listen but i was uh, all set to be double (laughs) oh three
0: and i could have been double oh four maybe after pegasus goes away we can try again Okay. Um but in it, it, truthfully this it's not really that funny. I, I know I'm laughing and I'm I'm not trying to be facetious. I, I think this issue issue is very serious. And to answer your question, um I think it is possible to find out whether or not you're on that list, but uh I haven't been able to see this thus far. Um between balancing work today and preparing for our chat, I did look around a little bit and I couldn't see anything like a link in any of the media coverage. So if Amnesty International has uncovered this list, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to me that they're going to publicly disclose who 11 governments around the planet have collectively labeled as enemies of the state, because that would tremendously uh, make them vulnerable. That would tremendously compromise their security, their human security, not just their device security. That is not information that needs to be out in the public. That needs to be protected, not exposed. I would imagine that if you wrote to Amnesty International, they could probably investigate for you. But more usefully, Mike, Amnesty International has provided a very clear step-by-step protocol that is unprecedented as such that any one of us can go and, and read about on their website that will teach you how to check to make sure whether or not a government has installed Pegasus On your device, it's very, very clear. It's easy to follow. It takes some patience because there are some technical things that you have to deal with here. But if you wanted to find out whether or not your government or a foreign government, including Hungary, I mentioned Mexico, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, there's a couple other in there that I can't recall. But if you wanted to see whether or not they had labeled you as a dissident, it's certainly worth looking into. If you are an advocate, if you are a journalist, if you are a politician, a local member of parliament that are listening right now, you probably should go and look, because that is a very, very extensive list of people that is being globally shared among probably the most aggressive 11 countries on the planet.
1: Yeah, 50,000. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Cook. Now, just got an email that says that Edward Snowden had talked about a a spyware trade ban years ago that this was something that he was concerned about even you know years ago when we talk about the information being shared is it being shared is it being sold could it be both
0: i think that given who the nso group is as former surveillance operatives of one of the most surveillant countries in the world, being Israel, I think for them to develop a system like that, it would be very, very, very difficult for them not to know if a non-state actor who didn't purchase that software was using it. So in other words, I cannot see this list being on the black market. I think this is a very tightly controlled list that is being shared between those 11 countries, Of course Israel is going to be aware of it as well, and I think Amnesty International has obviously seen that, but this is a list that is being closely protected. If if it gets out, it's going to compromise more than just those individual security, but it will tremendously hurt international relations between those countries as well, Mike.
1: No doubt, because one country is going to be saying, "Wait a minute, you you were watching these individuals," and then another country will step up. That, yeah, that that's something that you would want under wraps. But Amnesty International claims to have the list of fifty thousand people.
0: As far as I'm understanding, it's not super clear to me. I'm not going to say definitively yes. Okay, but they have been able to to validate that there is a list of 50,000 names in existence and that list is a reflection of curated targets between 11 countries.
1: Well, we started off talking about this sounding a lot like a James Bond movie or a Robert Ludlum or John le Carré novel. Yeah, it it still kind of sounds that way. We'll see where this does go now that the attention has been turned to it once again and in kind of a big way by Amnesty International. Thank you for doing the groundwork and laying out what this is, Dr. Cook. We really appreciate the time.
0: Hey, my pleasure. And as a final thought here, if I may really quickly, I think these things are things that we ought to be more concerned about on a day-to-day basis. After four years of pure noise and anti-science and what is generally characterizable, I think, as a half-decade of lack of trust. It's extremely important that we are aware that there are A, governments in the world that are working with the private sector to develop highly invasive surveillance technology, and B, those technologies are not being used to watch other governments. They're not being used for military purposes. They're being used to target educators. That terrifies me. So I hope we continue this conversation. Thank you very much for listening, everyone.
1: That we will. That is Dr. Thomas Cook as we talk about the Pegasus Project and the latest chapter of it. Dr. Cook is a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.